Welcome back to How We Got Here. This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Okay, podcast world, if you love history or you just love to hear about all the quirky stuff that's happened around us, this is the podcast for you. It's about Virginia's rich history, told one week at a time. I'm Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. This week, we find ourselves turning back the clock to June 10th through 16th. There's a lot to cover. We'll go back more than 150 years. It's not a good day, June 15th, for the Confederates. And... We can't help him, we're helpless. I mean, we're, we've got bats versus uh, rifle. All the way up to some terrifying events that happened just two years ago. I want to start on June 12th, the year... 1967. And I leaned in and I said, Mrs. Loving, how did you do that? And she looked up at me, big face and all, and she said, I just want to get married. That was her whole motivation. I just wanted to get married. That's Floyd Thomas, the family friend of a couple who changed history. On June 12, 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rules that Virginia's laws prohibiting interracial marriage are unconstitutional, saying they violate the 14th Amendment. The decision overturns the bans on marriage on the basis of race in 16 different states. Let's pause on that for a second. It was only 52 years ago that it was illegal to marry someone of a different race in 16 states here in the U.S. That landmark decision was thanks to a couple from the Commonwealth. Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter lived in Caroline County, Virginia. Richard, a white man, and Mildred, a woman of mixed African-American and Native American ancestry, fell in love and exchanged wedding vows in Washington, D.C. That's where interracial marriage was legal in 1958. Then they returned home to Virginia. Just five weeks after their wedding, the Lovings were awakened in the dead of night and arrested. They were indicted on charges that deemed interracial marriages a felony they pleaded guilty the following year and were sentenced to a year behind bars unless they left the state for 25 years. Can you imagine? They were essentially banished from Virginia for falling in love. So they left, going to D.C. for a few years to raise their three children. But they wanted to come back home. Who wouldn't? Mildred wrote to the attorney general at the time, Robert F. Kennedy, he referred them to the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU agreed to take their case, bringing it to the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals in Richmond. Claire Castagnaga is the executive director of the ACLU Virginia today. It's become clearer and clearer to the public that what people are looking for is what everybody's looking for, which is the ability to form a stable, 
loving relationship that has these legal and financial protections. They lost, but the fight was not over yet. After another appeal, the country's highest court took this case in the spring of 1967. On June 12th, a unanimous decision. The Lovings were no longer criminals for choosing to marry someone of another race. In the decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. When the Loving case was decided, a significant majority of Americans did not agree with interracial marriage. And the court went ahead anyway and said, these people have a fundamental right to be married. To this day, June 12th of every year is celebrated as Loving Day, commemorating the moment of the landmark decision. Virginia is for lovers. It's a famous slogan adopted by the state in 1969, unveiled for the first time, and you guessed it, Modern Bride. Just two years after the Lovings and their love story paved the way for freedom of choice in decisions of the heart. Let's step back a century from the 1960s to the 1860s, specifically June 15, 1864. We're in the Civil War here, and what's considered the first big battle at Petersburg. The following four days would set the stage for the months-long siege. But to fully understand that battle on June 15th, you have to know why Petersburg was the Union Army's next big target. The Union is trying to split the Confederate capital of Richmond from its main supply hub a few miles south. Petersburg was an important part in that uh, supply operation because of rail lines that linked to other parts of the Confederacy. That's Emmanuel Dabney. He's the museum curator at the Petersburg National Battlefield Park. He was reading a book the size of an encyclopedia when we showed up to interview him. Every historian and expert that we talked to said there was nobody as knowledgeable as Emanuel when it comes to the Tri-Cities area and the Civil War. <laughs> I do love Petersburg. I mean, I grew up with it. My family has been here. As I jokingly say, there was Adam and Eve, and then there were the Dabneys of Dinwiddie. Side note here, when I think museum curator, I go old, grain, maybe somebody who's been around the block. That's what comes to mind. Emmanuel is none of those things. He started working at the Battlefield Park back in 2001. I grew up with Petersburg National Battlefield. It was a running joke when I was a kid that I would be working here and having not become the mutant superhero that I thought I was going to become, I started working here when I was 16. You go there now and you still might think he's 16, but he's 34 and he's already a museum curator and far and away the expert on everything Petersburg. He knows what he's talking about, especially what was going on in Petersburg back in early June 1864 when the Union was on its way. And suddenly there's a few thousand Union troops moving towards Petersburg. 
Petersburg at that point had been a military district that was led by General Pierre Beauregard, Confederate hero from the First Battle of Manassas. Pierre Beauregard. You might know him as PGT Beauregard, the man who gave the order to fire on Fort Sumter to start the Civil War. Beauregard knows that there is a threat to Petersburg. Uh, the issue now is how to the Confederates defend both the Confederate capital and its sister supply city. At this point in the war, Union General Ulysses S. Grant was focused on destroying Robert E. Lee's army after the bloody Battle of Cold Harbor. Remember that. That's a callback to episode one. He had a very methodical uh, pulling away from Cold Harbor, uh, which would keep the Confederates confused about where it is that Grant is sending troops next. Really a brilliant decision on his end. Grant was trying to keep Lee guessing on his next move, and it would have worked if not for some federal missteps and, frankly, bad information and Mother Nature. The earliest Union troops to arrive outside the Confederate earthworks is about 11 in the morning. People will still be arriving until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's getting pretty hot by this point in the day. And by pretty hot, Dabney means really hot. He told us that June 15, 1864 was well over 100 degrees. And remember, there isn't air conditioning on a battlefield. So the Union is dealing with one of those sweltering summer days in Virginia, as well as that bad information. A Union general who had not been to Petersburg promised the general who was just arriving, William F. Smith, that the Confederate defenses and trenches known as earthworks were, quote, so low as that a horse could jump over them. That turned out to be false. Uh, when General Smith arrives here outside of the city's defenses, they are, of course, much more prepared than he had been uh, anticipating. It's not that a horse could jump over mere breastworks. These were well-prepared earthworks uh, with clear fields of fire for at least a half mile in front of the Confederate lines. So he can't just rush this area. Clearly, this won't be easy. Smith needs a good plan, but he runs into another problem. Unfortunately for him, he had drank some bad water, and the bacteria in the water had upset his bowels. So he is literally crawling around to try to find the best point to attack between his episodes of diarrhea. He finally chooses to attack battery number five on the Confederate line. There are dozens of these batteries, which are really fortified areas with groups of troops and artillery. General Smith chose that spot because it sticks out further than the rest, thinking if he can take battery five, he can turn the cannons against the Confederates and take Petersburg fairly quickly. The hope is to bombard the Confederates prior to an infantry assault. It just took hours to finally launch the attack. Remember, the final troops arrived about one in the afternoon. And so at seven o'clock in the evening, the artillery uh, will begin blasting away at the Confederates. If the temperature delay wasn't enough, Mother Nature had another trick up her sleeve, the terrain. The Confederate positions in this uh, eastern area of Petersburg, uh, a number of them were situated on some pretty high hills leading down into some steep ravines. It's hot. It's a Virginia summer. Soldiers are likely marching to their death. 
Now they have to climb up and down hills just to get there. The hope, of course, for the Federals is to get down into a ravine to get away from this firepower on the Confederate side before having to go up and down into another ravine to get closer. So think about this. The Confederates are shooting cannons at you and you're at the bottom of a hill. This is chaos. And then a breakthrough. The weak area in this sector of where the Federals are attacking is a ravine that separated batteries six and, and seven. It won't take long for Union troops to exploit this ravine, which undoubtedly shocked the Confederates. The Union had broken through the Confederate line. Federal soldiers were on either side of them, shooting to kill. But remember, Petersburg doesn't fall for another nine months. There's a reason the Union didn't capture that city in June of 1864. Union General William F. Smith made a choice most of his army didn't agree with. It's the decision that he made underneath that full moon that night uh, outside of Petersburg did not please everybody in the ranks. As, as one soldier stated that he had never heard such foul language in his life as the night of June 15, 1864, as the men cursed Smith for not pressing the assault on. So Smith decided to stop the fighting for a night. We can only speculate now. Had he continued, perhaps there never would have been a siege of Petersburg. The Battle of June 15th is over, a clear victory for the Union. So why did the siege last nine months? Well, June 16th, 17th, and 18th happened. <laughs> so basically, the Union is still having trouble coordinating its assaults. And because of that, Robert E. Lee is not convinced that Petersburg is truly Grant's next target. Remember, Lee isn't even in Petersburg, he's in Richmond. General Beauregard could see what was happening. Beauregard, through kind of a final telegraphed warning, finally convinced Lee that the real show is here at Petersburg and that he better move here if he plans on keeping the city in Confederate control. Late in the day on June 18th, after days of fighting, thousands of federal soldiers now sit outside Petersburg Lee recognizes he has to defend Petersburg. It's not an optional thing. It was clear uh, to Grant that they had to take Petersburg away from the Confederates to get rid of Robert E. Lee's effectiveness in the field. Petersburg would fall nine months later. A week after that, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Petersburg was pivotal. You've probably noticed a theme in these episodes, war. The Commonwealth has been the stage where a lot of battles, people, and moments have been inked into the history of this country. Head east on Interstate 64, and you'll go through Williamsburg, which was the capital of the colony of Virginia during our next moment in time, June 12, 1776. The Revolutionary War was underway. The Virginia Constitutional Convention was meeting in Williamsburg. The colonies wanted independence. George Mason drafted the Declaration of Rights. It included the right to reform or abolish inadequate government. It was debated for two weeks in the early summer of 1776, and on June 12th, 
it was unanimously adopted. Now, why does this matter? Who cares about a document that a bunch of men agreed to 243 years ago? Virginia's Declaration of Rights was used by Thomas Jefferson, who drew heavily from it when he drafted the Declaration of Independence just a month later. It was also the model for James Madison. Mason's statement on religious tolerance became Madison's religious freedom in the Bill of Rights. The same set of amendments that would be added to the U.S. Constitution. The piece of paper represented the first protection of individual human rights under state constitutions in the revolutionary period. That's just a bunch of fancy words, meaning it was a big deal. Another way for the people and a place right down the interstate from Richmond are forever connected to our everyday lives, even if it was just a bunch of guys putting their names on a paper 243 years ago. And now a more recent moment, two years ago, June 14th, 2017. It was around 7.30 in the morning when my news director came running to my desk out of breath to tell me, you're headed to Alexandria, Virginia. That's about the time we started getting reports of an active shooter on a baseball field. Shots being fired and there are people running, possibly victims involved. The first call into 911 was 7.09 a.m. I still got shots being fired. A group of Republican lawmakers were practicing on a baseball field, playing catch, swinging bats for the annual congressional baseball game. A tradition started in 1909, a time for Congress to set aside political differences and enjoy America's pastime. A rifle-wielding gunman opened fire. That's audio of the actual shooting from bystander Noah Nathan. This is former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. We were doing batting practice and uh, all of a sudden we heard shots and uh, it was clear pretty quickly that there was a shooter there with a high-powered rifle. Representative and House Majority Whip at the time, Steve Scalise, was shot in the hip. Representative Mo Brooks describes the horror of watching as Scalise desperately tried to get off the field. He's drug himself from the dirt infield to the grass outfield. Uh, there's a trail of blood. Uh, we can't help him, we're helpless. I mean, we're, we've got bats versus uh, rifle, not good odds. Two Capitol Police assigned to protect Scalise, they jumped into action and started firing back. They were both wounded and hailed heroes. It all went down near a YMCA on a quiet residential street in Alexandria. Neighbors told us it sounded like a battlefield. It blew my mind that this would happen here. Um, Delray is about as far as from a war zone as you can get, and it sure felt like one this morning. My first reaction was, with the pop, 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 is somebody trying to kill people in the YMCA like they did at Virginia Tech or Columbine. This assailant died in a battle with police. I'm not going to name him. I've covered enough mass shootings in my years as a journalist, and I've heard from enough victims and families and survivors that person doesn't deserve the acknowledgement. I know in the initial days of a shooting, we need to know who and why. But in the weeks and years that follow, countless survivors tell me it's the people who were shot, 
survived, killed, we should be focusing on. As media, including myself, set up in a small neighborhood to cover the latest mass shooting, we caught up with a priest, a woman, Pat Hilgard. She made a simple statement. It's the next incident, you know, that's, and it's getting worse. And what are we going to do? Just four months later, a gunman opened fire on a music festival in Las Vegas, killing 59 people, wounding 441. A few months after that, it was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, 17 dead. And then it was Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, 11 gone. And now, Virginia Beach. Are we numb? June 14th, 2017. Politics was purposely left in a parking lot. Only for lawmakers to run into bullets on a baseball field. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. A very special thank you to the wizard behind this podcast, Colton Weekly, and to our digital director, Kate Albright, who thought of this whole idea. Thank you, Tina Rodriguez, for the beautiful logo. And a special shout out to the Dabneys of Dinwiddie, specifically Emmanuel. Next week on episode three. The mountain music of Southwest Virginia. It's a scary thing to think about. I try not to think about it too much, but it's something that could happen. You know, this is weather, this is nature. The power of Agnes just in time for hurricane season. Gestocky with a bright red beard, 26-year-old, very full of himself. And how Captain John Smith got Disneyed. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, rate and review us so others will find us. We'll be back in your life next Monday.